0: Well, good morning, Calvary Baptist. In case you don't know me, my name is Steve Daw. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, I'm usually uh, sitting way back there behind the camera. So this is kind of a different feeling for me. I've preached once before like this, but uh, usually I'm behind the camera. The reason for that's pretty simple. I'm a nerd. I pretty much have made peace with that. And Honestly, I've done a lot of things that give me a lot of nerd cred. One of them is that in my misspent youth, I actually did a philosophy degree. That's a really strange thing to do because philosophy degrees generally don't get you a job very easily. There are a few things that are less marketable in the job banks than philosophy degrees. But that's what I have. When I was a first year in philosophy and I'd just become a Christian, uh, well, just made a profession of faith and I'd just actually started taking my faith seriously, I can remember going to an introductory philosophy class where the professor gave me this syllogism, which is a a logical argument, a a logical uh, designed to persuade you of something. He said, first... Religious people say that God is good. Second, he said, Religious people say that God is powerful. Then as a third point, he said, If God is good and powerful, then evil should not exist. Point four, evil exists. And to be honest, as a Christian, I don't actually... Argue with that point. I think that's pretty clear. Evil exists, and so his point, his conclusion from this, therefore, God is either not good, or, or not powerful, and him being an atheist would have said, and God thus probably doesn't exist. Now, after I finished my uh, philosophy degree and went through it, obviously, since I'm an elder at a church. I don't think that that argument is quite as persuasive as my professor had made it out to be. There are logical problems with it. But there is also an emotional weight to this problem. If you talk to most people who have said that they were once Christian and have become atheists, one of the things that they will cite most regularly is some form of the problem of evil. Uh, I remember watching a movie uh, earlier last week when uh, the son of Tony Campolo, Bart Campolo, uh, now the secular chaplain for Harvard University, said that his faith died a thousand unanswered prayers because he faced the evil that's in the world and he didn't see God doing anything or at least God not doing enough in his estimation. I think difficult texts like the one we have today does a great deal to answer questions like this. It's said that hard texts make soft hearts. And it's important that we look deeply into difficult texts. So I'm hoping that you guys still have Hosea chapter 13 open. That's where I'm going to be preaching from. That's where I'm going to be speaking from. And that's hopefully where I'm going to help you to see not just merely that God is good and God is powerful and that despite the reality of evil, that God is displaying his power even now. So first of all, I just have three points. The first point is, God actually is good. Uh, It's interspersed throughout the passage that we have in front of us, uh, because as with most prophecies, it's going uh, in a cyclical model. It's talking about God and then talking about humanity's response and then God's further response to that. But I'm just going to deal with verses four and five since we don't have a lot of time left. But God is good. So this is verse 4 and 5. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me there is no savior. Keep that in mind for point 3. It was I who knew you in the wilderness. In the land of drought. And it goes on to say the many ways. That God has helped his people. And. And. If you've read the rest of your Bible, you know that there's a reason that God gives good gifts to his people. It's because God is good. James chapter 1 verse 17, which our brother Matt will preach on next week, says that every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father. God gives good gifts because God is good. And in Hosea chapter 13, it's clear that God gives good gifts to his people. That's actually why the evil is so bad. And now, I want to be careful here, too. I'm not saying that God is good as if there's this thing outside of God called goodness, and God somehow meets that definition. There's an umbrella over God, and God is under that umbrella. No. God is good is a statement of definition. The definition of goodness is God. God is good in the same way that I am Steve. God is good in the same way that one equals one. It's a statement of identity. God is good. That's point one. Point two, and this is another point of agreement that I had with my philosophy professor. Evil exists. Evil is real. Now, again, I'm going to be careful here because we tend to use words to minimize the word evil. Uh, Strangely enough, one of them that we've used this way, as even Christians lately, has been sin. Sin is actually human evil. We see it interspersed throughout the passage here. Verses 1 and 2, verse 6, verse 12 and 13, verse 16a. Evil is a real thing. Human sinfulness, human evil is is a real thing. Again, I don't have time to go through every single instance that's mentioned in chapter 13 of God seeing the evil of man, but I'll deal with one, and I think probably a very brilliant one because it gives us a lot of insight into the evil of man. That's verse 2. It says, And now they sin more and more, and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them wor- the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves." Now, there's two really important things that we need to notice here. The first is that evil being real is not merely something outside of us. Notice that God is pointing this to his own people. This is what he's saying about his own people. They are doing evil because they are evil. They've embraced their sin and because they've embraced sin, they have become themselves evil. This is important because we like to imagine that other people are evil. Usually when we're talking about the problem of evil, we're not talking about ourselves and our own problems. We're talking about what other people do to other people or what other people have done to us. We very rarely, if ever, talk about the problem of evil as if it's the things that we do to others. It's interesting how humans, myself included, are usually... It's easy for us to see the sin in other people, but so hard for us to see the sin in ourselves. In fact, I'll even be more impatient with the sins that I think other people are guilty of and will be a little bit more accepting of the sins that I'm likely to be guilty of. There's a reason for that, too. It makes it easier for me to believe that I'm a good person. It makes it easier for me to imagine that I'm the definition of goodness. And that's the second major point you wanna see in verse two. You see, verse two is about idolatry. And it's not a mistake that God links idolatry to sin, to increasing sin. It's not two separate things that they're doing when it says they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images. The making of themselves metal images is closely related to the sin. We see how it happens. Uh, another atheist that I once read said that to get a good man to do evil requires a religion. I'll, since I don't believe that there are actually good people independent of Jesus Christ, I'd alter that a little. To get anyone to do evil and feel justified about the evil they're doing, you need a false god. You see, we do this all the time. We redefine the definition of goodness. Now, remember I said God is good. When you define goodness as something other than God, you have by definition created an idol. Worse, you've created an evil idol Because what makes your idol false is that it differs from goodness. We build false gods to applaud the evils we like and to exclude the evils we don't. People talk about the polarization in society these days. I mean, if you watch the news, you see it everywhere. You've got major camps of people building up on either side, and they keep lobbing grenades of words at each other, and hopefully not actual real ones anytime soon. But you see what's happening. One side is saying, those guys are Marxists, they're evil, so I don't need to listen to them when they talk about systematic racism or the other side will lob back. Those guys are racists, so we don't need to worry about their support for the rule of law and for the police. Those guys haven't counted their privilege. Those guys aren't thankful for their blessings. Yeah, they're just sexually permissive, so I don't need to worry about how they're treated unjustly. They're just Puritans, so I don't need to worry about the dangers they're pointing to. We do this all the time. We take the things that we want to feel good about ourselves for, our holiness, our righteousness, we become self-righteous, that's what self-righteousness is. And then we look at others and use them as an example of the evil, because we're different from them. Jesus talked about this when he gave the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You remember the Pharisee said, I thank you, God, that you've made me not like this tax collector over here. And that man is not justified. But that's not just limited to Pharisees. We all tend to do it. And you see, we do it because it's, a, it's very easy to do. If I want to discount what somebody else says or what somebody else is accusing me of, it's very easy to find sin in other people's lives because we're all sinners. It shouldn't be a surprise that I'm able to find negative things in other people. What the problem is, I then use that as a reason to not listen to them to not hear the way God might be speaking through them to improve my actions, to improve my faith. And in the meantime, Satan laughs as we destroy each other. You see, the worst part is we don't know that this is idolatry. What's the idol? Well, whatever we're counting as more important than the truth. When I say that uh, I, I want to accept people, I'll make justice my God. Uh, when I want to say that equality is important, I'll steal from others for the sake of my God, equality. We can suppress people in the name of freedom and we can even hate people in the name of love. Because in each case, we've created an idol that defines our good and it's not God. And so because we've got a false God in our minds, we follow that false God and become more and more like it. That's what had happened to the people of Israel. That's why they were sinning more and more. They had started to build idols to validate their evil and sin. It would get so bad that by the time the, the Babylonians actually finally destroy Israel, act, there are some people who are actually saying, we didn't worship our false gods enough. That's why we're being destroyed. And idols lead to very dark places. This is just the beginning of the process. We see it in history. Soviets didn't start with pogroms against their enemies. They started asking for equality from the government that was suppressing them. And over time, as they had worshiped their equality, it turned ugly and became evil. It happened in the French Revolution where freedom Brotherhood, free... Uh, liberté. Anyway, the three facets of the revolution were venerated above all things else and the end was that the, everybody who didn't meet that definition was seen as evil and thus okay to be destroyed. We like to put outside of ourselves evil. Imagine that other people are evil and that we are good and so we will even change the definition of good itself to make ourselves feel better and, friends that's evil that's not just a bad thing that's not just a minor sin that's evil and as we gaze into this kind of evil it will corrupt us Eventually, we'll start doing things that we never thought possible. Our idols move us, they lead us, they call us away from God, away from goodness. And as they do it, they corrupt us. No, friends, evil is real. The problem we have isn't that we see evil as too powerful, it's that we see it as too weak. We imagine that the evil is something we can defeat if we can just get everybody else to be just like me instead of like God. And the most perverse thing, I'm not talking merely about people who aren't Christians. The most perverse common false god in the Western world right now is the false god or are the false gods that we name Jesus. How perverse is this? We take the name of Jesus Christ and we attach him to all sorts of false religions, to to ideas that aren't really what Jesus stood for. We imagine that Jesus is okay with our ungodliness. We imagine that Jesus is okay with our desire to hate other people. In really perverse times, we'll actually use Jesus to venerate racism. Jesus wasn't white. He also wasn't black. He's from Jerusalem, so he's probably Jewish. And yet, we do this so easily. We'll do it in small ways and we'll do it in big ways. And friends, if you're doing it in small ways, it's going to become big ways over time. Sin never stays in in, in a small box. We'll imagine that God is okay with our lust for other people. Well, imagine that one white lie doesn't matter too much to Jesus. Forgetting that Jesus is God incarnate, the thrice holy God we met in Isaiah. And Jesus calls us to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. How do you know if you're following an idol? It's pretty simple. If when you face God in worship and praise, when you read your Bible, when you spend time in prayer. If you have faith only in a false God, you will always feel completely affirmed all the time. You will never find yourself moved to humility. You won't find yourself moved to thankfulness for the mercy he's had on you. You won't be like the tax collector in that story I referenced earlier. You won't be beating your breast and saying, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Instead, you'll be saying, Lord God, thank you that you haven't made me like these sinners that, you're looking, that I'm looking at in Hosea. We believe in false gods, and that's evil. And now, the really important point, point three. Point three. God displays his power in dealing with sin. Brothers, sisters, there will come a day when God finally, finally at the end of his patience with the evil he sees. And friends, whatever evil you imagine that you get outraged by, God is far more outraged by it. (laughs) Jesus is more outraged by racism than any Black Lives Matter activist. He is more outraged by lawlessness than any pro-Trumper. He is more outraged by hatred than the most hateful person you can imagine. And there will come a day when he will say, enough. And it will be enough. We see this in the text. And it's, it's just a sign of what's happening here. Because the people of Israel are going to receive the just desserts for their sin. The punishment for their sin. I'm going to be reading from verses 14 and 15. Now... Just for a bit of a linguistic thing here, verse 14 is a little bit difficult to translate, and so that's why you're going to see different translations depending on which Bible you're looking at. Uh, The fact is, if you translate it one way, it's going to look a little out of place in the passage. It looks like God suddenly says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, I shall redeem them from death. O death, where is your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? And then it says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. And then it says in verse 15, though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness and the fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. I shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Those sound a little different. I will redeem them and I will destroy them. There is an alternate reading. If you look at some of the more academic translations and if you look at uh, some of the more Ju- the Jewish translations of the prophets, you'll hear, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? Or Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And the fun part is, because of the way that it's phrased, both are accurate translations of the text. God, in one sense, it states that God is justified in his wrath against his people. And he will exercise his justified wrath. How wrathful is he? Verse 16b is justified. As graphic as it is, and I'm not even reading it here because it's graphic. It's a fully justified response to the sin of his people. Remember, this is a sin. This is a people who sacrifice sacrifice people to their idols and then imagine that animals are more valuable. So completely unlike our culture. God's wrath is clear. God's wrath is justified. He is angry at sin and he will deal with it. The fact that he hasn't dealt with it yet is a sign of his mercy. Every moment that we awake, every moment that we aren't actually in active suffering for the sins we so richly harbor in our hearts, God is being merciful to us. But friends, that mercy will not be forever. There will come a day when God will example his wrath. He will deal with evil and evil will be done. And let's be clear, we're talking about God here. Who can stay the hand of God when he purposes to deal with the rights of to right the wrongs of man, who can stop him? Can Satan? Seriously, Martin Luther was right when he said, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him of Satan. Can my sorrow stay the hand of God's wrath against me? Can my good works? No, merely dirty rags in the face of the righteousness of God. What of all the civilization and technology of man? Against the weight of God's sheer justice? No. If we even brought the full power of the cosmic universe to bear, to try and stay the hand of God's wrath against sin, he created it by the word of his power and upholds it by the same. There is nothing more powerful than God and it is God who has wrath on evil. Who is to save us from this body of death? There is one. There is one whose protection can save his people and keep them safe in the midst of strife, even as God himself meets out wrath on those who justly deserve it. Namely, Jesus Christ. You see, you may have recognized verse 14, 13, 14. There's a reason that a lot of translations use an alternate translation for that passage. It's because a very, very knowledgeable Jewish scholar by the name of Paul of Tarsus wrote a letter using that verse. Allow me to read it for you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting to read at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And here's the verse from Hosea. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, by the way, this is kind of an interesting point you should probably notice when it comes to reading your Bible. What I'm saying is that God used ambiguity in phraseology in Hosea to give us hope in the midst of our sinfulness. In the midst of God promoting, proclaiming his wrath against sin and evil, he has a little descanta, a sign of his grace and his mercy to people. As it's said in verse 2, there is no savior but God. I think maybe verse five, actually. God saves his people through Jesus Christ. There is one who can handle the wrath of God on your behalf. There is one who, when faced with the full wrath of God against evil, without actually saying that it's not evil, affirming the fullness of God's just wrath against sin, who took that for the sake of the people who have faith in him and absorbed it. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ, where we sang about how God uh, saved us through the cross, the cross of Christ isn't just an image of a weak God being uh, Rolled over by the evils of man. It isn't just a sign of weakness. Friends, it is a sign of God's power fully displayed because the wrath of God was visited on Jesus Christ. It's through the cross that God observes wrath, not merely of a man, not merely in legal fiction, but the sheer weight of wrath that we honestly, in our darkest times, know is due for evil. The evil that lives in us. God incarnate goes to the cross of his own will and drinks the cup of God's wrath to the dregs for his people and says, it is finished. Friends, when Christ is on the cross, he holds his hand over against the wrath of God and absorbs every bit of it and begs you, come, put your faith in him. Friends, the The problem of evil is answered in Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for sin. He is God's merciful way. He is the reason God can show mercy to us every moment of every day. By grace, I pray that you're placing your faith in him for your salvation. Today, we're going to actually have a uh, dedication of uh, a child, Isaac. Isaac is born in sin like the rest of us, but we are going to promise that we're going to expose him as much as is possible to the saving work of Jesus Christ. But be careful, don't let this day pass by without you availing of it too. The only application for Hosea chapter 13 is simple. Repent. Repent of your evil because God has made a way for you. Make no mistake, all sin, all evil will be dealt with by the power of God, either through his just punishment or through the cross of Christ. There are no other ways. None stay the hand of God, but God himself Repent of evil. Don't just feel bad, but forsake it. Turn right now to Jesus Christ and put your faith, put your trust in him. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. Your justice and your mercy are evidenced in everything that you've said and done. Right now, As we return to praising you, Lord God, open our eyes to the glories of yourself. Help us to trust in you and to forsake sin, not because of our righteousness, but because of yours. In Jesus' name we pray.